0: uh, great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin to study God's word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer to ask His guidance on our study. Father, as we come together, we recognize that this is your word. This, is, this Bible is your word. It is your revelation to us. It is not the opinion of Moses or Paul or John or Isaiah or any of the others. This is, this is divine revelation. This is your word given through these human instruments that have inherently and infallibly recorded it that we might learn your will for our lives, learn how to think, learn how to reflect upon reality so that we understand in the midst of whatever chaos there may be that you are working out a plan and a purpose. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand and grasp because so often we just want to interact with things or react to things from our own uh, narrow personal perspective. But, Father, we know that all things, you are working all things together for good and that you have a plan and a purpose. And so, Father, we can rejoice in that and trust in you in the midst of all of the uh, vicissitudes of life. So, Father, we trust you. And as we study your word today, we continue to talk through these sections in Ephesians that address us personally in terms of learning how we are to live as new creatures in Christ now that we are in the new man, the new entity, the church, the body of Christ, that we have a high calling, a distinctive calling, a unique calling, and that we are to walk worthy of that calling. And all of these passages we've been studying in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 teach us about that lifestyle, the way of thinking primarily, which results in a way of living and communicating to others. So help us, Father, as we study these passages, because there's some difficult things there we have to work through, and that we might understand them in light of your grace and goodness to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. And we are continuing to talk about inheritance because of the nature of what is in our passage in Ephesians chapter uh, 5 verses 3 through 5. Uh, in this section we continue to talk about what Paul has started to talk about back in uh, Ephesians 4.1 where the command was to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called and then, in ephesians four seventeen he said that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the emptiness, futility, or vanity of their life now that 's just an interesting verse. The more you think about it, the more I think about it. the more I think that what Paul is saying there would not it 's not accepted he, that he would be considered to be very politically incorrect today because he is saying to most of the culture around around us that you guys are just spending all of your time, energy, and effort in that which has no value, no significance, and no importance and will not last beyond the second that you do it. And to believers he is saying you have been called out from that and you are not to live with those values, those priorities. You are not to be shaped by the, uh, by the thinking of those around you. But we all know that we are because we're all products of our culture. We're saved out of that culture, and really, the rest of our Christian life is designed to teach us to break with everything that we perhaps valued as members of Satan's world, and that we are not to value uh, any anymore. So we are not to live like that. It just we, ne- we, we I don't. Sometimes I don't think we get very far. Even on our best days, sometimes I don't think we advance very far. Uh, sin is such a best analogy I have. Is sin is such a pool of quicksand that we're trying to pull ourselves out of, and we have. It's as if we're trying to walk out of being forehead deep in in a quicksand. And the snowshoes that we are wearing just make it almost impossible. But God makes it possible. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual life is not simply a way of morality. It's not some philosophy. It is a supernatural life because we have been given a supernatural rebirth. We are new creatures, a new creation in Christ. And so this is how we are to live. And every culture has its problems, its trends and everything. And the Ephesians were no different, as I pointed out last time. And that is why I think in these verses that that Paul emphasizes, as I said last time, he emphasizes uh, certain things here. But when he comes to the end of this list of sins in verse... Um, Let me see in verse five where he says that those who are, uh, doing these things will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That bothers a lot of people when they, when they read that. It is a question that comes up. And I got several comments Uh, last week. I was surprised as much as I've taught on this from people who have heard me teach on it many times. They said, you know, I have just what I just really appreciate what I, what you were saying last week and focusing on understanding what this passage means because it sounds pretty devastating if you don't understand it within the context of Ephesians or the context of, of God's Word. So a question I would ask this morning is, do you or have you, have you ever committed any sins which perhaps they shocked you and may have caused you to wonder if you have committed an unpardonable sin. Now, I know that a lot of you have been believers for a long time, and you know enough to where that hasn't bothered you perhaps since you were young and you were a young believer. But I've had a lot of people raise questions about this who are not well-trained or well-taught. At one time, I covered a lot for Jim Klubnick when he would go on on vacation and on Thursday nights on KHCB. I think his son does it now. It's a call-in question and answer. And this was always a question about, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I done something where I have forfeited my, my salvation? And so we read this phrase in at least three or four passages in the New Testament where there is a list of sins followed by the statement that somehow this jeopardizes uh, inheritance in the kingdom. And so when we look at this, there's basically three, three ways in which historically these passages are handled. And we have to think through this. The first way is a view that is um, that we can it means we lose our salvation. That inheriting the kingdom is just another phrase for getting saved. That is partially the result of the fact that many in Christendom, especially since the um, uh, since the development of of uh, allegorical interpretation by Origin and then institutionalized by Augustine in the early church that it is assumed that the church is the kingdom, and we are in the kingdom, and so by being already in this spiritual form of the kingdom, that somehow this means we are kicked out of the church. We lose our position, in fact, within Roman Catholicism. That is something that uh, can it is understood that way. It is understood by to be for within Protestantism something called Arminianism, named for James Arminius, who was a Dutch theologian in the early 17th century, late uh, 16th century, and who taught that yes, indeed, you could lose your salvation. And so there are many people in various parts of the world that have an Arminian theology where you can lose your salvation. Salvation is not permanent. Salvation is something actually that you do something in order to uh, make it happen. And so they would interpret it that way. There's another similar but different theological system uh, called Calvinism, and those are usually juxtaposed to each other as if there's only two, Calvinism and Arminianism. In Arminianism, you can lose your salvation. Calvinists believe you can't lose your salvation if you're truly saved, if you've had the right kind of faith given to you by God. And so if you have the right kind of faith given to you by God, you may sin here and there. You may even get involved in some pretty serious sin. But you will constantly have a life on the upward trajectory as uh, if you are truly saved, you will persevere. But if you don't persevere and you rebel and go back into a life of sin then you weren't really saved. You didn't have the right kind of faith. You just had a counterfeit faith in Jesus. And I've taught on those things before. Uh, Calvinism is characterized by the five points uh, summarized in the acronym TULIP. The P in TULIP is perseverance of the saints. Some have tried to change that to be the perseverance of Christ, which gets closer Louis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, interpreted perseverance to just be eternal security, and there are some who do that. But in, in Reformed theology or Calvinistic theology, the P means that if you persevere throughout your life in obedience and walk with the Lord, then, um, then you will be saved. The most egregious example of the horrors of this took place about 20 years or so ago, when a well-known Presbyterian pastor named James Montgomery Boyce was on his deathbed, and he was going to be taken to the Lord within just a few days. And at the same time there was another well-known Reformed Calvinist speaker who went to be with the Lord, I think, just a few years ago. His name was R.C. Sproul. And he was having one of his well-known Ligonier conferences, and every night he prayed that Boyce would persevere, not give up the faith until the end so that he would know that he was saved and we would know he was saved. Isn't that terrible? That's just a system of legalism. If you're doing anything to gain or preserve your salvation, or if you're doing, yeah, if you're doing anything to gain or preserve your salvation, then you did something to get it. You're hiding work somewhere in there as a presupposition. And it's just a system of bondage and legalism. The third view recognizes some people call it full grace. Some people call it true grace. Some have called it bold grace. Some call it free grace. It's just God's grace. And that is that God does everything necessary for our salvation. All we do is we trust in Him. We believe Christ died on the cross for our sins and that He paid the penalty in full and that we rest in His salvation. And that we may fail many times, we may even turn our back on Christ, but we are saved because we have trusted in Christ and at that time there is a supernatural transaction that takes place inside of us where we are made alive together again with Christ. And to understand regeneration is to understand that this is such a phenomenal thing that happens that it's not reversed. You can't imagine what God would have to do to reverse everything He did to make us a new creature in Christ. And we have to remember that the sin penalty was paid in full by Christ. He didn't pay 99% of it so we could add to it. He did it all. He paid it all. When He said the last thing He said on the cross before He died, died physically was, It is finished. In the Greek, it's the word tetelestai, which is in the perfect tense. And that's a tense that means this is something that is completed in the past with results that go on into the future. It is done. It never needs to be repeated. Nothing needs to be added to it. It is complete. And the point that God is making in the scriptures is so profound that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the the Apostle John said, "When it was finished," using that same word, "When it was to tell us die." Jesus said, "To tell us die." It's repeated. The Holy Spirit doesn't repeat Himself a lot in Scripture, but when He does, uh, we should pay attention to it. That is something that is important. So all of our sins were paid for. Every sin. It doesn't matter. Some people say, well, what about the sin of unbelief? Well, if you believe afterwards, obviously that sin was paid for. We're not saved because the sins were paid for, because that's only one of the three problems we face. That problem is the penalty of sin. The other two basic problems are that even though Christ paid the penalty for sin, that doesn't regenerate us, it doesn't give us righteousness. We have to trust in Christ, and then we are uh, born again, born anew, given new life in Christ. And we have to believe in Christ to receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're never saved because of any righteousness on our behalf. So this is the doctrine of justification by faith. It's based upon this concept of imputation. To understand imputation is to understand we have eternal security, That, that, and if we, where I'm going with this is if we are eternally secure, then whatever this phrase inheriting the kingdom means, it doesn't mean that if we have a lifestyle of these sins or we commit these sins that we lose our salvation. So we have to understand this eternal security thing. So righteousness and justice are inherent to God's character. Perfect righteousness is his is moral ethical being he is it's not something additional it is who he is he is perfectly righteous and that is the standard of his character the standard of all that he does the justice is his application of that standard to his creatures so because god is righteous and just he cannot have a relationship with unrighteous sinners Scripture says in Isaiah 64, 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. He doesn't say all of our unrighteousness is like a filthy garment. He said all of our righteousness is like a, our filthy garment. The best that you do, the best that we can ever be, at our highest moral point, it's just garbage in God's sight compared to His perfect perfect righteousness. So here we are, we lack righteousness. How in the world can we ever have fellowship, have a relationship with a God who is perfectly righteous? That's where the cross comes in. Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. And so our sins were imputed to him. That's a, an accounting term. It is accounted to him. It's put on his bank account, as it were, our deficit. And he pays it. And because it is imputed to him, it doesn't make him a sinner, but it does mean that he paid for that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him, he, the first he is God the Father, made him god the son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf not to be a sinner but to be sin he is so there is a judicial break between the son and the father not an ontological that means in his being he is still one with the father in the trinity but judicially he is separated for those 3 hours on the cross as we observed in the lord's table "...for the purpose that we might become the righteousness of God in Him." So when we trust Christ and we are identified with His death, burial, and resurrection, we are in Him, and in Him we have His righteousness. There's a picture in Zechariah 3 of Joshua the high priest who's being accused by Satan of, of being a sinner, being, and, and God then has him put on these robes of righteousness, which is a perfect picture of what happens to us at salvation. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Underneath, we're still a, an unrighteous person. But when God looks at us, he sees Christ's robe of righteousness, and he declares us to be righteous. So the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to us, and when God the Father sees it, he declares us righteous. This is the meaning of that phrase that came out of the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith alone. We are declared just. We're not made just. That was the Roman Catholic concept. And that way if you're not made just, then if you sin, uh uh-oh, well, you lose your salvation. That gets threatened. We're declared righteous. So God looks at that righteousness given to us, and then because we are righteous He is free to bless us. And that's Ephesians 1.3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. This is who we are. Now I want to give you three verses that are very strong verses. There are numerous more that tell us that we are permanently saved when we trust in Christ as Savior. The first comes out of John ten twenty-eight and 29. There we read, Jesus is speaking. And Jesus says, and I give them, referring to the, his sheep, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. God is not someone, and Christ is not someone, who's going to give us something and take it back. That that is not an appropriate giving. Uh, He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That's a promise. Who's making the promise? Christ. Can Christ maintain that? Yes, he can. He is still omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. He can do what he promises, and he doesn't promise what he couldn't do. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now throughout the Scripture, the phrase of the hand of God or the power of God is an idiom for his power, is omnipotence. So what Jesus is saying here, I am so powerful that no one, once you are in my grip, no one can take you out of it. And then he goes on to say, not only do I have a grip, but the Father has a grip. We're we're double gripped. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. All means all. There's nothing that is greater than God's power, and it is God's power that keeps us. So no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Then we go to the second passage, Romans 8, 38 and 39, which is sort of a conclusion to the first eight chapters before there's a break to a different focus. And Paul concludes and he says, for I am persuaded. And for Paul to be persuaded means that this is under divine inspiration and he is stating an absolute truth. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. He's using a figures of speech here called a merism. And merism is when you use opposites to talk about a totality. So life and death, dark and light, here and there, these are terms that just incorporate everything. So he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, see that's a contrast there, he's talking about the holy or elect angels and then the uh, the demons, on the other hand, in the principalities nor powers, those terms are used of the demons. Uh, so he's saying there's, there's no angelic being, holy or demonic, that can touch you. So it's neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. So you only have the creator and the creation. And so he says there's nothing in God's creation that can possibly separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus. So when we trust in Christ as Savior and we are placed in Christ, nothing can ever take us out. There's nothing we can do. People who say, well, you know, I can commit some sin and lose my salvation. Really? Does that mean that God in His omniscience, a God who knows everything, didn't know about that sin in eternity past? He did not impute that sin to Christ on the cross? Because that's basically what you're saying. You're either saying God forgot about my one sin and he didn't pay for it, or you're saying that my one sin was too great for the omnipotent grace of God. Either way, you've got a God who is not the biblical God. So we can never be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the third passage is the one I finished with last time because it talks about our universal uh, inheritance that is true for every believer. Paul begins his introduction to his first, I mean Peter begins his introduction to his first epistle by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, that's His standard, His abundant mercy, He has begotten us again. Notice, we did not born ourselves, birth ourselves again. God did it. We just trusted in Christ, but He is the one that gave us a new birth. He is the one who made that new birth happen. That He has begotten us again to a living hope. A hope is a that we have a confident expectation of something. And then it's done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because as he conquers death and has new life, that is a picture of regeneration. So he, God the Father has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to something, to an incorruptible. An inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that will not fade away. So, this is an inheritance. Now, the word inheritance is what we're going to begin to focus on because the basic meaning of the word inheritance in English is the idea that someone has died and they have left you something. But in the ancient world, inheritance uh, was more of a possession that was um, given to you that may or may not be related to the death of someone. Last time I talked about the adoption uh, laws uh, in the Roman Empire. And so they could adopt a someone that was not their son even. They could adopt an illegitimate son or they could adopt someone who wasn't their son and make them the heir. And they could even turn that those possessions over to them uh, before they died. So this is what this inheritance is. It's a possession that is uh, incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. But look at the next fa- next two statements: reserved in heaven for us, who are reserved in heaven for you. The you is then defined by the next clause. You who are kept by the power of God. Every single believer is kept by the power of God. Every single believer is in the grip of the Lamb, the grip of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single believer is in the grip of the Father. He, they are the ones who keep us, not us. That's why this doctrine of perseverance of the saints is not a biblical doctrine. It's just a made-up way to keep people under moral control. You're kept by the power of God, how? Through faith for salvation, not through works. So this is an inheritance that is not through works. We'll see that there's an inheritance that is different that is related to obedience, that is in addition to this inheritance that is for each and every believer. So when we look at this term in the scripture that of inheriting the kingdom, it has to mean something other than getting eternal life, or spending eternity in heaven, or spending uh eternity with God. It is inheriting the kingdom uh, has something to do other than being in the millennial or messianic kingdom with Christ or eternity with God. Instead, inheriting the kingdom, the kingdom, the term kingdom has to be defined first. For, for example, you will find that the vast majority of Christians in history and today think that the kingdom is a present reality. That has a history that goes back to the early church when allegorical interpretation came in so that Israel also meant the church and so you find the church in the Old Testament, and when it talks about uh, Israel in the New Testament, it's talking about the church. And so everything gets confused. And they lost the concept of the kingdom being the millennial, the 1,000-year messianic rule of Christ on the earth, which is clearly defined as such in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 20. Several times the term 1,000 is used. And there's no case of any number... In all of Revelation, that is not to be understood as a literal number. So it's not an, not an exception. But once you make a thousand, just to be oh, well, this just refers to a long period of time, and as long and so the church today is the kingdom of Christ, and that that is a spiritual kingdom. So right away, you have probably 80 percent of all Christians don't understand what the kingdom is. The kingdom is that future 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth. After the second coming he will establish his kingdom and he will personally rule and reign over the earth. It will be a time when the curse is partially rolled back. There will still be some occasions where there are those who die and some other things, but most of the curse is really rolled back. It's not an absolutely perfect environment, but because there are many human beings who are born during the millennial kingdom who still inherit a sin nature and will still sin. So it will get so bad. Can you imagine this? Under the perfect government of Jesus Christ, things will get so bad that at the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released and the demons will be released. See, there's no demonic or satanic activity at all during that thousand years. God's pointing out, see, the problem isn't Satan and the demons. The problem isn't the Democrats or the Republicans. The problem is an Al-Qaeda or Hamas or Islam. The problem is each and every individual is, by nature, a sinful rebel against me. And what happens in perfect environment, no influence from Satan, no influence of the false religions, nothing but man's own deceptive sin nature. When Satan is released, he will lead a rebellion and millions upon millions will follow Satan and, and rebel against the rule of Christ. That's hard to imagine. But if it's hard for you to imagine it's because you don't understand your own depravity. Just think about that. Because that's what it's all about, is saying that it's our own sin nature that's the problem. It's, we can't blame it on anyone else. So the idea of inheriting the kingdom is not salvation. It has something to do with possessing or enjoying the benefits of that kingdom in the future. And the thousand year reign of Christ is only the sort of the antechamber or the prelude to eternity. So it's like phase one. And in phase one, there'll still be sinners. But after the great white throne judgment, we go into phase two, which is into eternity and there won't be, uh, there won't be any more sin. So this idea of inheritance, is the idea of possessing something, and we get that by looking at various things uh, in the Old Testament. And we've studied this to a great degree, but I wanted to spend time. I get a lot of questions. Now, I know probably uh, the vast majority of everyone here has a pretty good grasp of eternal security, but you need to be reminded of it because you will talk to people who don't. But I I interact time and time again with people. We have visitors. We have visitors here this morning. We have visitors who come in who have these questions. We have some who are young believers here uh, who may have questions. How do I know I'm really truly saved and that I can't do anything to lose my salvation? What about Jesus talking about the unforgivable sin? And the unforgivable sin back in Matthew chapter 12 has to be understood not in terms of a sin we commit that keeps us from ever being individually saved or justified, but the context is that the Pharisees have accused him of doing his miracles in the power of Satan. That that is the official religious rejection of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And that is an unforgivable sin for the nation Israel. They've given Thousands of chances over the previous year and a half to two years to accept Jesus claims as Messiah, and it comes a point when God just stops giving opportunities, and so they have. It's the final straw, and 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 Jesus says, "This is the unpardonable sin. It's you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit." And from that point on, He never offers the kingdom anymore. And their future judgment in history, which will come in seventy a d their future judgment in history is set at that point because that generation has rejected Jesus, so they are the ones who are going to um, who are going to uh, be disciplined. And the nation will be defeated and they'll be taken out of the land as prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. He's not talking about individual um, loss of salvation or inability to be saved. He is saying it's unpardonable in the sense that that judgment's going to come. You, you've had all the time in the world to change, to turn back, to straighten out and to repent. But you didn't. So now judgment's going to come. But they, individually, they can still be saved. Look at all the Jews that got saved on the day of Pentecost. And in the early church, in the first eight or ten years, you had thousands of Jews accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And they're going to have eternal life. But that generation couldn't escape the temporal judgment. And so that's important to understand these passages. And so many people get confused that I thought, well, we need to spend a little time just being reminded of these, of these things that this is not in what this is talking about. This inheritance has to do with our rewards. And so what we're going to see as we go forward in this, we'll take another look at the judgment seat of Christ and that there are those who are there who are, everybody there's a believer some will be rewarded to one degree or another others will lose rewards but all will enter into heaven all of them are saved and so we'll look at that this is a hard topic for some people to understand that that we're saved by grace but rewards are based on our uh, our obedience our service our faithfulness to god and God's not going to evaluate us the way you probably would. Always remember that. If Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, Ehud, I mean, not Ehud, Barak, show up in Hebrews 11 as heroes of faith, that gives me great hope. <laughs> God is going to be gracious. In his evaluation, because as it says about Jesus, he understands who we are. He was created as we are, but without sin. And we have a high priest who is like us. He understands us, and he's the one who's going to be evaluating us. And so we'll come back next time. We'll continue this on these difficult passages of inheritance to understand them. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that our salvation is secure in you. Our salvation is based not on what we do. Our salvation is based on what Christ did on the cross. We simply accept the free gift. And when we do, you begin a transaction in our lives that creates instantly a new new creation in us. We are a new creature in Christ, new creation. We are born again. We are alive for the first time, ever fully alive. And that can never be lost or reversed because of your grace. And, Father, we are thankful for that, that we don't get it because we do anything and we don't keep it by doing anything. And so even after salvation, we can turn our backs on you or not. We're still saved because of that free gift. So, Father, we're thankful for the assurance of salvation in these and many passages in the New Testament and the fact that we can never commit any sin that wasn't paid for, that we can never commit any sin that you forgot about. And that all sin was paid for at the cross, and by trusting in Christ, we are given forever his righteousness. So we can never lose that salvation. Father, we pray that this would be clear to anyone who is here that has never clearly heard the gospel, anyone listening online, anyone live streaming, and that for those of us who have trusted Christ, maybe it will help us be more clear when we explain the gospel to uh, those around us. And Father, so we are so thankful for our salvation and thankful for your word. And we just praise you for all of your promises that give us such a great security. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.